Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Dr. Cynthia Long Westfall, who is Associate Professor of New Testament at McMaster Divinity College. Um, Cynthia has a PhD from University of Surrey, Roehampton, has an MDiv from Denver Seminary, uh, an MA from Northern Arizona University, a BA from Biola College, back when it was called Biola College. Cynthia is the author of a fairly well-known scholarly book called Paul and Gender, Reclaiming the Apostles' Vision for Men and Women in Christ. It's widely considered one of the best defenses of the egalitarian position of women in church leadership. And I am just about done with the book. I tried to finish it before the interview and I got really, really close, but I was excited to have Cynthia on the show. And we, uh, yeah, we talk a lot about all those passages that you're thinking of when it comes to women in church leadership. And she, uh, whether you agree with her conclusion or not, you'll easily be able to appreciate how incredibly sharp she is, how knowledgeable she is, especially of the Greek language, and how she um, has provided a very, very thoughtful argument for women in uh, positions of leadership in the church. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Dr. Cynthia Long Westfall. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Cynthia. I am, I've been looking forward to this for a long time, ever since I started to read your book many years ago and now have picked it back up. Thank you for this book, Paul and Gender. It's an excellent book. Why don't we start with uh, what led you to write this book and what led you to become interested in the question of, it's often framed women in ministry. I don't, I, I, I like to say, you know, women in church leadership over men might be the more specific issue. But yeah, what led you into this conversation? Well, I was asked by my PhD supervisor to write a book on Paul and gender. Okay. And so I said, I said, yes, and, which I said too many times, but I said, <laughs> yes. And uh, in terms of writing books, you know, uh, that, that, but, but he asked me to do it and I agreed to do it. And I took a good long time to do it. I had a position Okay. Uh, at that point, uh, but it was a long time coming. How did I come to this position? I would say that that's a question. And what what led me down this road? And I think that any women women any woman who has a set of gifting of say leadership or teaching gifts or you know or feels called to ministry, mm-hmm. even if they're called to a parachurch ministry, they are going to be. Uh, dealing mm-hmm. with this issue. I think that's one thing that men and people who don't have this gifting, women that don't have this gifting, don't realize that uh, women who are walking this line, who have this calling, face a barrage right. of challenges and criticisms. And so all my life, uh, since I became a Christian at 14, I was challenged in this area, even when I I was complementarian. Mm-hmm. So I was I started out as a complementarian, but I somehow wasn't behaving properly, which was interesting. <laughs> you know, it's it's like I couldn't figure it out. I'm doing everything. I tick off all the boxes. I'm in complete agreement. What am I doing wrong? Huh. And uh, there's a lot of you know embedded theology uh, that goes way beyond what people claim the scripture teaches about women in uh, ministry and leadership that you know comes into play and i was raised as an agnostic i didn't get it i i couldn't i just simply couldn't and i would read the bible 
and I would do what the Bible says. And I, I think I handled it fairly well um, uh, from the beginning. And uh, it seemed clear to me what the Bible taught. Then you'd, I'd get in the zone spiritually and I'd, I'd get pushed back. So this kind of dissonance mm-hmm. characterized my life. And I went into campus ministry mm-hmm. and, you know, got involved in evangelism, but I loved teaching. I, I didn't make anyone come and hear me. You know, he's like, whoever wants to come and hear me, you come and hear me or don't, you know, and, and I'm just, I'm just excited about the text. And that was, and that, that's been, I think what's really characterized me as that I found myself every time there was a door open, like to go to seminary, there wasn't a door open when I graduated from Biola, I went to Biola, okay. no doors open that I knew of. And, but when I went to the campus ministry, they made me go to seminary. And I was like, yes, yes, <laughs> I get to study Greek and Hebrew, maybe. And, uh, <laughs> and people found this incomprehensible. And it wasn't because I wanted to uh, be a pastor or challenge the system. This is just the desire of my heart, hmm. you know, is 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 uh, the word of God. And, I, and the word of God really, truly saved me on all levels. Hmm. Because I grew up in a very dysfunctional home, and I knew I was in trouble. And then when I became a Christian, and I and that's the thing, I mean, I poured myself into the Word of God, and the Word of God really did transform me. So I had a life worth living. So wow. what would be better than to go deeper and deeper uh-huh. and deeper? And I didn't care where it led, and I, it was just wow. a journey of pure love. You know, so I just kept going to actually, I kept going to seminary like a professional seminary student. (laughs) One day I met Craig Blomberg and I was crazy over Greek by that time. And he was he was having me after I was a student, he would have me come in and sometimes, you know, team teach or do something and do a little session Mm -hmm. about Greek. Finally, he said, you just got to get your Ph.D. and teach. Right, and right. the voice of God, and um, yes, that's what you, that's what you're going to do. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a bigger story than that, but yeah. uh, there was a clear calling, a clear leading, a clear when you're in the zone spiritually, this is where you go. Yeah. It wasn't a, a challenge to authority, mm-hmm. but as as I went through these this dissonance between what I saw in the text and what I had been taught was the role of women, what was permitted and not permitted. I saw these things thrown into contradiction constantly. And it was sometimes pure textual contradiction. And I have a very high view of scripture. So that's not going to work for me. I'm going to figure this thing out if if texts are brought into contradiction. That's the kind of interesting thing is that it appears that people don't realize things are in contradiction or they'll say it seems to be in contradiction, but mm-hmm. it's kind of like it's all going to come together in the clouds. Uh, but no, there are some very, very serious contradictions um, that women who are like me really get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that's the role of experience and interpretation, I think, that, um, you know, when you're when you're in this place, uh, the, the seams become visible. Mm-hmm. Where, uh, and to me, this is a view of, of interpreting scripture and having a high view of scripture. I don't think it honors scripture or God to uh, make scripture, to mm-hmm. take scripture in such a way that not only doesn't teach what it's supposed to teach, but maybe undermines other clear passages mm-hmm. about 
how you're supposed to follow God with all your heart. Yeah. How, how, um, that you, you, you know, what is it Jesus said about hating your mother, father, sister, uh, to, to uh, follow him in spite of what anyone says to you. Mm-hmm. And like, strangely, what I was taught as a woman is, oh, it's different from you. You're supposed to pay attention to all those people. Yeah. That's how you'll know what Jesus is telling you what yeah. to do. And that, those things came into conflict. And so my whole, uh, adult, well, I wouldn't even say adult life, even pre-adult life has been working through the dissonance and working through the contradictions. I wouldn't, I wouldn't come down off the line you're on for the longest time. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I think that that's a noble place to be. So uh, you, yeah. So, you, I mean, when you said you grew up commentarian, were you, did you just assume that view or did you go through a period where you were studying, 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 and you were like exegetically convinced of complementarian, uh, the complementarian reading of scripture? I was, and, and I wasn't raised, com- well, well, I should say I was raised complementarian. I was raised in the 1950s post-World <laughs> yeah. War II gender roles. I was supposed to be a Victorian woman and an ornament to society. Right. <laughs> well, I still can tat, but that's another story. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm curious. I ultimately want to get to like what, I, I, I appreciate your your recommendation to, to move slowly because you know, oh. there there's, you know, as I'm finding out, and you know, I kind of knew this ahead of time, but now as I dig in, there's a lot of complications. I just looked up how many studies have been done on kephale, the meaning of head. And it's like, this person says it's authority, source, it's both, it's neither. And it's like, here's 15 really in-depth studies that I feel like I have to wade through and do word searches. And that's just on the one word. And then, you know, authenteo and all, you know, there's, there's just a lot of uh, stuff that I, I don't feel like I'm in a place where I can just trust this scholar or that scholar because two scholars I trust say the opposite thing. So I'm like, I need to dig underneath. Um, what was it for you that... Let me, let me back to the question you asked. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, in, in the beginning, having said I came from a, a broken place at a dysfunctional home and became a Christian, I was the ideal uh, disciple in a sense. It's just tell me what I'm supposed okay. to do and I'll do it. I mean, I, this is all about obedience. I'm not even trusting my instinct. That that was a dangerous mm-hmm. place to be, actually, to say you don't trust your instinct. But it was like I'm going to be formed by the Word of God and by faithful teaching. And so I was in a fun, fundamentalist circles that were very friendly with John MacArthur and his whole teaching. So there was there was no other view. Also, even at the time, we're talking. Um, Say when I started at Biola, it was 1971, and there weren't a significant. Yeah, now everyone knows how old I am. But there was. (laughs) I'm not going to ask, but I want to. But I won't. I won't because you don't look like you with the Biola. I'm 69, like in a month. Yeah. But but I I don't feel like it, and so there we are. Uh, I I, you're. But I do feel like I'm from the 50s and 60s. I definitely am from the 60s. Maybe that'll settle a lot of things. Okay. Okay. Fair. But, but uh, yeah, there wasn't another view that was really significantly out there at that time. And we're talking about uh, even the feminist movement was just kind of getting underway. So um, it was really later that even the first whispers of evangelical feminism came out and then later egalitarianism. And so that, that all developed uh, well, I was going to seminary, but after I'd gone to Bible school. So there was just no question about what was right. I was just trying really hard to live with it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but but to, to uh, about taking your time, I think some people 
might be okay to work with intuition, but I think, I think people that the the kind of person I think that you are, you take your time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're you're, you're completely right about the complexity of the issue. And sadly it's at this level that I think, uh, that the that conversation will move over at, at more of an academic le- level because we're talking about things like word studies in the Greek, yeah, you know, yeah. and how are they uh, used during the first century and this kind of thing. Can you get, take us down your exegetical journey? Like what would, I'm curious about your first kind of like aha moment where you were working through a passage and like, Oh, Oh, that doesn't say what I thought it said or like, oh, you know, yeah. Did, did you have one of those or a few of those? <laughs> I think Gremke said, oh, if I only could learn the Greek, it, then I would really discover <laughs> some amazing things. And when I first learned the Greek, I thought, you know, she wasn't right. And <laughs> now I would say, no, she was right. <laughs> but the frames that are placed on the text are so very powerful. Is a, and and um, you don't even realize what you're importing into the text to interpret the text. The big breakthrough came with Ephesians 5. Okay. And now we're not talking about women in leadership, but we're talking about, you know, the issues of women and men and mm-hmm. authority. And uh, what, what that was is that I realized that all the Bibles that I had read uh, broke up a sentence and started a new topic. Mm-hmm. Right? And so um, that I started, and the more I studied, that this thing kept breaking. This this passage kept breaking for me. The more I studied for uh, studied it, the more it looked really really interesting. But the first breakthrough was to realize that wives submit yourselves to your own husbands was right in the middle of a sentence. Mm -hmm. And that the sentence started with Ephesians 5.18 and it doesn't really end until pretty much until the instructions to women are done. And then the next thing that I, that was a major (laughs) breakthrough is that it doesn't even say women submit to your husbands. It says women to your husbands. And and it's like, Oh, and especially the more I got into um, actually the study of discourse analysis, which has nothing to do with with a study of of women in the Bible. It it had to do with how it was handling Hebrews and how I how I read Hebrews. Totally different thing. But reading it from a discourse analysis understanding is that, you know what, you respect the grammar. Yeah. Respect the grammar. Mm -hmm. What's being done here? And uh, that's your starting point. And, I th- and uh, just even going there, you just all of a sudden strip away all kinds of presuppositions that have been imported into the text. And so, so that was the first one to go. So yeah. can you, yeah, can you unpack that just a little more for somebody who might be not totally familiar with the issue? So in Ephesians 5, <laughs> 22, most translations like mine here says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But the sentence doesn't begin, like you said, it begins in 518, but then 521 has a, is it a participle submitting to one another in the fear yes. of Christ? And then the Greek would say wives to your own husband. It isn't like the, the verbal, there is a verbal sense carried over into 22, right? It's not, it's not like it's wrong to say, or is it wrong? How, what's the best translation of 522? Not not the most woodenly literal, but like what's Paul saying in that verse? Well, um, in the Common English Bible, we said, I want, in the Common English Bible, I wanted to actually take all of the household code that goes down through 6-9, uh, mm-hmm. and I wanted to, to indent it with bullet points. 
to show that the whole thing was about submitting to one another. Because um, what it is, is yes, there is a transition to the household code. And the fact that takes uh, place right in the middle of a sentence means this is being embedded in what's the understanding is okay. of being filled with the spirit. And so it says be filled with the spirit. And then it has a whole string of participles, you know, singing, psalming, making music, giving thanks, submitting to one another, for example, right. to husbands, for example, children to parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it says the thing is, is like what it's saying, submitting to one another, um, wives to husbands, husbands to wives. And so what I've come to understand that is to say, uh, one of the things you're going to ask, um, I, as a first century ch- uh, person in a house church, you're, you're going to yeah. say, submit to one another and go, I'm sorry, but how am I going to submit to my slave here? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a non sequitur here. Right, and right, so right. he breaks this out, breaks out these three authority relationships and then, it's, OK, this is how it's going to work uh, with you. But he spends the most time talking about men. And what's right. really interesting about that is that he, he almost does nothing to women. He doesn't even, do you understand? Hmm. Most English readers will not understand. There is not a single command given to women. That's hmm. not how the text reads, but there's not an imperative, not the case for men. So women is, he's like, he's like av- almost avoiding using a command. Why? I think it's because generally everyone understands what a woman's role is supposed to be. But then he turns it all on to his head. He starts giving commands to men. And what he says the strangest thing to men, and I, I rarely have seen complementarians, if never, have seen complementarians really explain what it means that Jesus uh, is the model and he's uh, giving baths and washing clothes and ironing and doing spot removal. You mean domestic chores. Like in your book, you talked about how shocking it would have been to describe the men, the husband's role in terms of domestic household chores. Like he's really turning the stereotypes on their head in this passage, right? I mean, that's... One time I was teaching a class in Greek and we were going through this passage and and, uh, a man who had been a missionary to Afghanistan and Pakistan said... They would hate this passage when I really started pointing out what it told them to do. Because, I mean, in those cultures to this day, right. the kinds of things that he's he's model, giving as a model and then telling men to nurture and feed like you do your own body. Right, right. Those are those are counter stereotypical yeah. Um, yeah. models. And so what he's really what I would understand he's doing here is saying, OK, submit to one another. Let me use women as my primary model. Of, of what it means to submit. This is how you treat one another, another person when you're submitting to her. And what's so funny about it, that the passage is funny because, I mean, in the end, the men are wearing a dress. He's the head and she's the body. So who has the genitals now? <laughs> right? She says, treat like she's a man. I mean, she's the body, right? She's like your body. Uh-huh. So, and so he's, he sat there and, 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 um, turned everything on its head. And what I think is funny, I think it's hilarious. He ends actually with a Hina clause and check this one out uh, and, and see what you think about it, uh, where it says, however, each of you, and it's funny, look at this in the group in the Greek, cause he really piles it on. He's kind of each of you men, you, yes, you, I'm talking to you. It's very <laughs> emphatic. 
uh, love your wives, and it's followed by Ahina, so that she may respect or fear her husband. And so um, they they say, hey, that's an imperatival Ahina. So they translate it as a command, and I'm going, what do you mean an imperatival Ahina? Check out the imperatival Ahinas. I would say that's a sexist category. Is that a thing, an imperatival Ahina? Is it? Not in my grammar. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean, you'll find it in grammars, but, you know, it's to actually say, obviously women are being commanded here. And I'm saying, you know what? He's making a real point of not commanding women here. And he's he's actually talking about making this about reciprocity. These kinds of things uh, get totally submerged in our translations. This is why it's wonderful to study the Greek. Yeah. I mean, not just, not just to, you know, sift through these passages, although these passages have a huge payoff, you yeah. know, in Greek, but to, um, but just in general. Just so just, general. just so my audience knows, they may not know this, like, uh, Cynthia, I mean, you're, you're obviously a biblical scholar, but you're primarily, I mean, you're a fundamental Greek scholar like that. That's your, you probably read Greek faster than I can read English. <laughs> um, so, so I mean, any New Testament scholar has to know Greek, but some are like, they really specialize in how the language works. That, that, that's your primary love area, right? Isn't it? I mean... Um, Discourse analysis yes. of, of, the, of the biblical text in the Greek. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's that's um, where I did my PhD, and that just continue that that has very much influenced the use linguistics applied mm-hmm. to the Greek yeah. discourse analysis and how that works. Yes, that was absolutely um, integral. Yeah. Uh, writing Paul and gender. It, it changed everything, right? Mm-hmm. When I saw all of a sudden took, you know, I, I uh, did did my PhD on the structure of the book of Hebrews, mm-hmm. which I'm still trying to convince everyone of. And I'm just, <laughs> and <laughs> I guess, I guess I have nothing if I don't have, you know, convictions. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. So let me, as I, um, I'm, and I'm still kind of marinating on, on your book and, and I, you know, I, you know, you read a, a book of this this length and, and depth, it's hard to keep it all in your mind. And I'm taking copious notes um, on everything. Um, the, the one thing you keep bringing up in your book that I thought was really helpful, and I've seen um, Judy Wolf uh, say the same thing with First First Corinthians 11, that, that Paul seems to be really navigating this sensitive tension of, of, of maintaining this countercultural Christian perspective and yet not pushing it too far. Like, so... He often maintains kind of the, the the shell, the husk of like a what a Greco-Roman household might look like, what the church might look like, um, how to behave in society. So he's using the same kind of symbols, but he seems to be kind of like subtly subverting those symbols. And this is, I mean, anybody who studies Ephesians 5 knows that like this is a popular, these household codes from Aristotle all the way to his era. I mean, this, this is a common way to talk about the household. And Paul even maintains Wives submit to your husbands, husband, but he completely subverts what submission is, subverts what being the head is. And like Aristotle would not like this. He would be pretty offended, <laughs> even though Paul's kind of like, oh, yeah, house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Structure in the house. Yeah, yeah. Wives. Yeah. Is, is that um, and, and, and I want to get the first Corinthians. First Corinthians 11, because there's some weird statements. It's like, whoa, are you a misogynist or are you a feminist? Like, is that, how would you describe that kind of, that kind of dance that Paul seems to be playing? And is that even an accurate way of, of describing it? Well, and this is where uh, I, I, the discussion in um, post-colonial 
uh, interpretation mm -hmm. really has shed some light on this is, is to say that you know, Paul was a, was a minority, a, a besieged minority in uh, the Roman Empire. And uh, so it's it's really comp uh, that the, the situation of Jews, um, whether they're in the diaspora or they were in what the Romans would call Palestine in, it, um, in Judea, he was working uh, as a minority within a dominant okay. and very oppressive empire. And when you are in that situation, you learn how to subvert, how to take actually symbols of the dominant culture and subvert them for the purposes of what you're trying to accomplish. And Paul makes no secret, uh, say in Romans um, 12, 1 and 2, that we're not supposed to uh, conform to the world, but we're supposed to be transformed. He also makes no secret that he is combating the uh, sexual mores of the day. Right. He is not buying into the gender, um, the gender stereotypes of of the time and I, people say people seem to think oh he bought the sexual stereotypes but not the sexuality but the two go together mm. hand in hand right. um in in terms of yeah what is a person and authority what's the pattern familius entitled to mm. and um you know the the right of life and death and control over the body of the people in his household. So uh, there were there were limitations, of course, but there were yeah. the, there were a lot of places that there were not boundaries at all. You said that he takes the symbols of the empire and subverts them. Do you, off yeah. the top of your head, do you know somebody who's written on that? I, I I see a lot of people kind of like what you're saying. I I know a lot of scholars who would probably agree with that. But has somebody really unpacked that on a on a in depth level? How he does? Oh, it? I think that that's being done is in post-colonial best is in post-colonial studies oh, okay. where uh, where people are um, uh, finding um, and and um, in some of the Pauline and empire studies or oh, Jesus right. and empire studies Richard Horsley maybe he <laughs> well people like that but but uh, yeah but that did, and and I would say you know, handle with care when we read these things we don't we don't buy what everyone says but you thus yeah. You know how this is done. I think is gold. Is to say that people that that people will uh, even use the etiquette of the culture and subvert it into an insult. That's an inside joke. You know these kinds of things. Huh. Um, so yeah. So so the understanding of uh, particularly scholars that have come out of that pe people have been formally colonized by um, the UK, for instance, have contributed. This is what it's like to live with a dominant power like that. Mm. And, and I will tell you that even though I said the UK was fairly brutal, I don't think it held a candle to what the Roman Empire was and the way it's treated it, peoples that it subjected, especially with the Jews, because the Jews were always um, resisting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In many, many ways, they were they, they were certainly a part of the culture, part of the Greco-Roman culture, but they were resistant uh, to so many things that they were considered. It was a, I like to say it was like a, a powder keg that was giving off sparks. What's that? You know, yeah. you know and it blew, it blew in 67, which right. was not long after these things were written, not long at all. So would you, just as, let's sum up Ephesians 5 then, because we got other passages that we got to get to. Would you say that Paul is maintaining that wives submit to husbands, husbands submit to wives, but he's redefining what submission is. And then his command to love your wife almost 
becomes, I don't want to say practical submission, but I mean, it, 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 there is a, so there is a mutuality built into the passage. I just, I just struggle with in the new Testament, husbands are never commanded to submit to their wives. Like that term is never used there. Parents aren't commanded to submit to your children, masters, slaves, but you do see the relationship still one of reciprocity. How would you, how, how would you navigate that, that tension? Well, here's the deal, and and uh, this is this is the thing that I think people don't acknowledge or understand that they take these passages as Paul making comments on society as a whole, okay. and what he was really doing is he was he, he wasn't. It wasn't challenging the authority structures. I, I wouldn't consider the household was under the authority of the church. The household was under the jurisdiction of the Greco-Roman Empire. And that was one of the things that they said. That was one of the building blocks of their hierarchy. It's the most basic foundational things. Thing go, things go wrong in the home. You have, you have you know, uh, defied the empire. You have to, right down to sexual positions. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was very serious business. And so... So he's giving instructions on how you navigate your faith and following Christ within these social relationships that he had no control over. He was not he he did not have power within the Roman Empire to change the culture. He wasn't doing culture wars. Mm -hmm. He was talking about how we behave as people of faith when we walk in these roles. Mm -hmm. And so that's a huge distinction. And so he yeah, he's not he's not saying I'm changing the culture. He's saying here's where the culture is. And therefore, I just told you to mutually submit. So how is it going to look uh, like? How's that going to look like in these authority relationships? And what he says to men is quite subversive to where you say, oh, yeah. yeah, that's how men mutually submit or um, slaves and masters, uh, you know, in terms of, of it's it's the one who has the power that makes the bigger adjustment in these commands, as it should well be, because within the culture, no question that women are supposed to submit, children are supposed to submit, and above all, slaves are sum- supposed to submit. And if he were telling slaves not to submit, uh, that would undermine Christianity as a whole. It probably would not right. have lasted. Right. But instead of saying, yes, you guys submit. In fact, you're doing it right. In fact, you're my role models. You're my heroes. <laughs> and now people in authority, you observe their behavior and you model that. I'm not taking you out of authority. If he did, there'd be trouble. But uh, but within that relationship, you can still have the mind and the action of Christ. I've never thought of it like this precise, it's just kind of coming together now as a possible way to understand this, that the, the mutual submission description in, in 521, then he, you know, that sets up everything. Then he goes into three different sets of relationships, wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, masters. W- would you say that he's still using the familiar terminology to the Greco-Roman environment, but as he describes these three sets of relationships, like, like the content of the description is almost subtly describing mutual submission without using the term submit like he's not saying master submit to your slaves but the way he just reorients the relationship he kind of is getting at that without using the language because he's trying to use the same language that isn't going to offend his the greco-roman 
structures, but he's still gutting them from the inside out. Is that? Yeah. Well, he is, he's already said mutually submit. And I, I don't look at this and find this any more disturbing than I find Philippians 2. I think this is exactly hmm. what Philippians 2 is telling us to do. Or right. what Jesus said, if you want to be uh, first, you make yourself a slave of all in Matthew 25. This has been said over and over and over again. But how does it, but, but this is the thing is how do these teachings, how does Jesus' teaching or Paul saying, I make myself a slave to all that I buy, by all means win some. How does this work out within these authority relationships within the culture. And that's what, that's what he's doing with these household codes is he's helping them navigate the culture. Okay. Um, and so that's to say, uh, when we go from culture to culture, I think if we are following Paul's model, we respect the culture, but, and we work within the culture, but you know, we're bringing we're bringing something totally different in, in terms of our faith and its implications. So, so the whole, I mean, women in the, in leadership, however you want to frame it, there is a strong missional emphasis here. Like, like for instance, if, if, if you're a missionary in Saudi Arabia, it might hinder your mission if you had like half your elder team is all women and everything. Like there, there might be some cultural sensitivities while, while you're still trying to slowly establish a more maybe biblical mutuality within a structure that is still maintaining the semblance of the broader culture. Otherwise you just, your missional impact wouldn't, wouldn't be there. Would that be an, an accurate analogy between like, I wouldn't necessarily suggest that the church's structure should mirror the, uh, the, the authority, authority structure. Okay. Um, I, I would say when you're within society, but church is, is something different. And that's where we okay. could look at transformation. Um, and, and so that's what I would say when um, Galatians 3.23, which is not, you know, as you would gather, not the central verse, not my, not my silver bullet. As someone said, I said, no, I've never said that. But um, it, when it says there's uh, no Jew nor Greek, nor I, I got to get Jew nor Greek. It's not Jew nor Gentile. It's Jew nor Greek, right. uh, nor slave or free, no male and female. That that's talking about within the church. That's not like okay. the Magna Carta for all society. He's talking about relate. He says when you come through, if you if you you would allow me to say, the doors of the church. That's where our identity mm -hmm. and our our ways of relating change. And so uh, he, the, the church is his jurisdiction. Okay. But yeah, what do you do? Uh, yeah, but you still might have. Well, you have all kinds of relationships uh, in terms of husband, wife, uh, children and parents and slaves and free. I mean, some of, you know, both parties might not be there. Right, and, right. Yeah. And, and often they weren't. And, and so all those things is way more complex than people think of. And then people automatically read Paul and then they jump to what is he saying about, you know, uh, whether we run for office or something like that, and <laughs> just keep just keep it where it's supposed to be to to read it properly. Don't take it out of context and apply it to you know can't mean now what it didn't mean then. <laughs> That's a great expression, right? That is a great expression. Let, let's talk. I, I I think my favorite section of the book is is your stuff on First Corinthians eleven. That sounds mm -hmm. bad. Not that the other I didn't like the other. It's just that was like most like eye opening to me. Um, so for those who aren't familiar, we don't need to read the whole passage, but 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, where this passage, I mean, not only do you have the issue of head coverings or veils or whatever, or long hair, however you want to understand this, but you have some 
statements that some are seem outrageous that um, man was not created for woman, but woman for man. And then what's the one about the image? Um, oh yeah. Yeah. A man in fact should not cover his head because he is God's image and glory, but woman is man's glory. That seems to flat out contradict the rest of the Bible. Genesis 127, among other passages. Um, can you, uh, so, so, so does that, are, are we going to act like, yeah, okay, now this is what we think. And, but I would actually think it's the way that's being read. And in part, the way it's been a little bit, you know, tweaked in the translations to okay. me now. You know, I just see this as a, um, first of all, I would say, yeah, don't read this in a way that contradicts Scripture. Read in a way that it doesn't contradict Scripture. I mean, we can read the passage unless you just want to mishandled Genesis and we're going to go with it. But can we read this in a way that's totally and completely consistent with a, with a decent understanding of Genesis? And, yeah. you know, what you do see in uh, Genesis 2, that man was not good without woman, without woman, you know, is it went through the whole creation, everything was good. Then man's, cre- well, then we're in, yeah, in man's created without a woman and it's not good. And uh, there's a lot said about Adam naming the animals, but I think they're missing the point. It's not about his authority. Adam is beginning to see that he is needy. Hmm. He brings all the animals and he's like, oh, everybody has a mate. Everyone has a partner. Where's mine? And so he actually came to understand he was lacking. He was needy. And uh, so woman is created and he, when he sees her, he's like, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And, you know, it's really exciting. It's a really exciting thing. She, she met his need. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she's an Easer. As God says, I'm going to give you an Easer. But elsewhere in scripture, Easer is kind of like a patron who's helping someone in need. And really said, yeah, if you could read it this way, you know, woman didn't need man. Man needed woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the point of the whole passage, and yeah. why would you read it otherwise? And actually, this—if you read it this way—this helps you understand how the passage seems to kind of logically fall apart. Because he says, "Hey, I'm not saying women's independent of man," and you're going, "Right." I just thought you said yeah. that uh, she was, you know, created to be a to be a, a slave, and that she was not even in God's image. And and then and then you say, "Hey, but women's not independent." And you're going, "Obviously." Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if you, wear- if you look at, I mean, 11 verse seven and compare it to 11, 11 to 12, I mean, two verses later, these seem like they're written by different authors. So that, it, it that seems should. Like it's arguments. So the number one would be that women didn't need man. Man was needy and she filled his need. That, that puts her in a patron client relationship. That puts her in a position of strength. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. Where she's the one who meets the need of the, and she is, has the power and ability to meet needs. I mean, for instance, I mean, he, he might've done on his own. He might've tried to sub, uh, subdue the world, but he wasn't going to uh, fill it. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. 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 And the other thing is, is that really man was not necessary at all. Uh, God could have created woman and then she could have started having children. Um, like, you know, I mean, like Jesus, right? He didn't need a man for Jesus. He could have just simply started with a woman. And and instead, 
because she's got all the equipment to do that between him and him and her. So, so man needed woman, woman didn't need man. Um, man is created in the image of God, uh, image and glory. He's the image and glory of God. Woman is the glory of the glory. And we know from Genesis that she is also in the image of God. Now we're saying she's got something else. So it's not so eleven seven again. Man's created in God's image and glory. Woman is man's glory. It, he's not saying women don't bear God's image there, because that's what it, like if you just read the English text, just that right. one verse, you would think, oh, man bears God's image, women don't. But that's not what well, he's. Well, reading this as a criticism of women, and and Paul is putting women in their place. That you're, you're going to read it that way, and I'm saying, wait a minute. I think you've missed it. This is not what's going on. And we don't know what the context was, but I would suggest that he is saying something positive about women. And he's not saying they're not in the image of God. He's saying they're not only in the image of God. They're also the glory of man, the glory of the glory. And the only other place that that occurs is is in the Apocrypha, where there's an argument about what's the most powerful thing on earth. And one of the guys and one guy says, I know it's woman. It's, it's woman. And one of the things he says, she's the glory of man. And that's to say she's more powerful than man in that context. That's the only place where I can find a comparable. Interesting. Okay. So, so woman is man's glory is not a demeaning term. It's actually the opposite. It's actually elevating her. Um, it's the best of what, what is right. It's the best. Right, right. Uh, the glory of the glory, and so if you're the glory of the glory, that's something. Um, but and the way I understand this is in the context of what the culture is, and in many places continues to be. Actually, this kind of understanding is quite pervasive beyond the beyond the Mediterranean world of that yeah. time, even to the present. Is that a woman's hair is her glory? Right, right. And and so how, now, how does that work out in the culture? And so in Africa, when a woman, um, and this is according to a Nigerian um, student of mine, he never saw his mother's hair, hmm. but you know she, she kept it covered. But when there was a village event, she would come out in her glory. <laughs> and so, I mean, then she would come out with her hair, and it was amazing. And so that's something where, yeah, is is part of your public expression. Okay. In in the Mediterranean world, they were saying, okay, you know, women ought to be covering that mm-hmm. up and that ought to be something that's between her and her husband. And so, um, e- even to the current day, you know, you take off a woman's veil, it's like ripping off her shirt or something. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, this is a, 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 an issue of honor and also modesty, but honors a very big. So, so covering, covering your hair, is covering your, I never could get that when I would read this initially, I was trying to read it. It's like, if your hair is your glory, it goes, your hair, hair is to women as women is to man. And I would like, ah. <laughs> and I was just trying to figure out the logic of it. Why, if the hair is your glory, do you cover it? It's like, well, when you're in worship, tone it down. Don't be in competition with the glory of God. I mean, mm. and, and uh, that's to say that, um, Women in these cultures and in many cultures are thought to be uh, dangerous. Right, right. Fatal it, attraction. Is it a, a veil or head covering here? Is that, that that's a big dispute, right? Or like, yeah. what is the? It doesn't matter. There were various um, different styles 
of and and methods of covering. Okay. Uh, Tertullian actually discusses this, and and uh, so it, even to this day, um, I sat in a room with I don't know seven women who covered their head. Not one of them had had the same head covering. They each one of them had a different style because they were from different parts of the Muslim world. In some cases, you know, um, the the covering might be minimal. In other cases, you know, it might be a full on okay. uh, covering veiling. But what you do is you say any of the covering is is what what you would call uh, technically veiling. And it's uh, okay. related to, for instance, uh, confining women to a harem. That's behind the veil, you know, and it's all associated yeah. with um, with what's going on there. And and that when you come out of your uh, I don't want to say private because that's taken differently, come out of your home, you can you can be uncovered in your home and you come out, you cover your hair. Your stuff on the first century context of this was fascinating. Um, and let me see if I could recall it in, in the first century. Um, veiling signified some kind of social status. Is that correct? Like a married citizen woman would veil, but like a slave woman wouldn't or something like that. And Paul just wants to level the playing field and just say, everybody should veil because certain women were finding freedom and then not veiling or something. And he's like, that's just, it's, I, can you 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 wrote it? You explain it better than I would. Right, well, I'm taking the position that uh, I, I believe I would take had I had I been there, and the women wanted to veil. Uh, that that oh, right. the contention was who got to veil or whether women should veil at all. So remember, this is taking, think about what I just said. This is taking place at a house church mm-hmm. where everybody's calling themselves brothers and sisters. It's a fictive family. And so, I mean, I could, and yeah, we get a reading on the on the Corinthian to say, oh, why don't you uh, take off your veil, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I would say, and I would say, in your dreams, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but we're brothers and sisters. We're at home. Paul! <laughs> Tar! <laughs> yeah, and, and did, yeah. Didn't, it, didn't it signify sexual availability, too, if you were unveiled? It did. It did. Yes. And so, I mean, there's so many problems with with the idea of without what the veil meant and freed women and prostitutes and, mm-hmm. and slaves they were not allowed to veil because they were considered uh, not virgins. <laughs> they were not honorable, obviously. You know, and their their ideas like uh, any, any of these women had been like defiled, you know, and had sex outside of the proper honorable situation. So honorable matrons veiled, but all these other people did not veil, and they had no legal protection, at least as far as the Roman Empire, Roman law was concerned. And so uh, they could they could sexually assault an unveiled woman oh, and she couldn't prosecute her, but, but if he, she were veiled and she was supposed to be veiled, she could prosecute them. Yeah. So it was, it wasn't like, um, yeah, when we say sexual availability, it was, it was, there was no protection. That's more of the way to say it, that there was no protection. And, um, if I were in that church, I wouldn't want to wear a veil is especially giving some of some of the volatile stuff they said was going on there. And then Paul's saying, Everybody, all women, all women veil. And I love it because that means that all women are new creatures in Christ and everybody's uh, honorable. Interesting. And, and uh, the translation of verse 10, I didn't realize it until I looked at your book and then looked at the Greek. My translation mm-hmm. says, this is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head 
that's not what the Greek says. The word symbol of is not there, right? It's she should yeah. have authority over her head. Is that, or how would you translate that verse? And why do we translate it with symbol? Oh, do you want me to, do you want me to do it in a vernacular? Is to say women should make the call on this, okay. which is going okay. to say this would support um, what I said is that the women wanted to veil. They didn't want to go to church to be sexual objects and this right. kind of thing. You're, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a first generation convert, right? I'm, I'm the first one of my family to become a Christian. And I wanted to, and, and for them to act like a person, you know, coming out of a, of a culture like that would actually want to flaunt is, is, kind of incredulous to me. I think, I think true converts, uh, if, especially women are going to want to veil in this situation. And this is what I think the text is indicating that the women actually want to be honorable in the worship service. Wow. And, um, and he's, he's, he's coming behind them and not only coming behind them, but actually indicating that they're full participants in terms of uh, praying and, and prophesying and prophesying was very authoritative. All you have to do is read verse Corinthians 14 to know that you know, people prophesied and they drove, you know, some, some guy comes in and they drive him to his knees, <laughs> right? He yeah. falls on his face because of what, because, it, because they confront him. Man, yeah. And this is to say, yeah, we want you doing it. You just got to cover, cover your head when you do it. This is where, <laughs> yeah, the, I, I don't, you know, there's different forms of complementarianism, egalitarianism, if we even want to use those terms, but it does. I mean, you, you clearly have women prophets, women prophesying. To me, at the very least, the, the complementarian view that to me would be most credible is one that has uh, male-only elders, but women teaching and preaching because you have clearly women prophesying. So you almost have to say prophecy isn't like actually teaching or it's not authoritative or it's not... Yeah. It's not akin right. to teaching the Bible or something. It's not, you know, I heard one person say, I probably won't name their name, but, you know, well, it's it's kind of a word from the Lord, but it's not like a prepared, you're not preparing a message, which I'm like, where do you, where do you, hey, where do you get that too? Isn't direct word from the Lord more authoritative than you studying commentaries? And stuff? <laughs> so I don't know that, that, that seems, I don't know how I'm still open. I'm, I'm still, you know, want to listen to that, but, um, like the Brashears, Gary Brashears, Craig, Craig Blomberg, their their kind of view of company. I, I see a lot of exegetical credibility there. And I don't know if you want to go into like First Timothy three. You know, uh, the the qualification for overseer is a one woman man, and that's. I just talked to Gary. In fact, he, he the podcast might release next in this one, but he's like, right there, you have to be a man. You have to be married. I said, so Jesus can be an elder. He's like, yeah, Jesus can be an elder. He's not qualified. He's not nor married. Nor Paul. Um, nor Timothy. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And he's he's very, like, yeah. It says you have to be a husband and one wife. Um, so yeah, we, uh, Gary and I actually, and at his invitation, yeah, we we talked together, actually to Evan Wickham's church. I know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we we both. He called me in and said, "You should hear what Cindy has to say." And he, you know, he he presented his view. And I will say, just again, understand Greek, understand how idioms work, and understand how how uh, grammatical gender works in Greek. And then um, this passage is is not gender specific. It's using idioms and it's using the masculine as the default gender. First of all, it says it's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. That's whoever. Right. This is one of the things that I talked about constantly um, having things thrown into contradiction in, in that um, 
that says whoever. There's a lot of passages that say whoever, that these restrictions on women override. And it was just like, it starts out with this general thing. That's me. If I desire to be an overseer, I have not, I have not done the big sin. (laughs) I am, I am not guilty of arrogance, not, not if men are not. Um, and then it goes into using just masculine terminology as it, as the Greek does. The Greek, the Greek does use masculine pronouns here, or is it like verse one, my translation says, if, if one aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. Is that a good? Yeah. I mean, uh, this is one of the things is that translations will put in um, masculine pronouns that aren't there. I'm talking about the passage as a whole, uh, where you're looking at either either if you're talking about the masculine singular, the masculine plural, that in general instructions, that's understood to be inclusive. The one woman man Uh, is an idiom. It's a set idiom that can be used for women. It's, It's something that stands for faithfulness. Um, and would not exclude uh, someone who's not married. Uh, it, 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 that's how idioms work. Do, do we have evidence of one woman man being used to apply to women? Because in First Timothy 5, Paul uses a wife of one husband. So he does flip it around there, right? I forget where that is. Oh, that's uh, in the, in the qualifications the to, widow, be on yeah. list, to be on the list. Right. Yeah. Verse not 5, 9, uh, she has been a wife of one husband. So there, that... He does know how to say I probably would confront that, too, and say we still got this idiom in in, that it's about it's about being faithful. I I would I would certainly consider that as an alternative there, as opposed to saying um, a woman who's been widowed and remarried could not be a part that then her husband died, couldn't be a part of that verse. I find that I'm I'm skeptical of that reading. Okay, Uh, I really am. Um, it, especially since if a woman were barren and she w- and yet she was uh, married and widowed more than once, that she would not be a part of this group and she has no relatives to take care mm. of her. I'm skeptical. But this is a set phrase where a set idiom and just like within pro- when Proverbs and how uh, the Septuagint. Uh, it's, Proverbs is translated in the Septuagint. It looks like it's all about men. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people make that argument, but really it, the way the Greeks would read that is you have a proverb in the masculine, whether it's masculine, singular, masculine, plural, and it's understood to apply to women as well. And so mm-hmm. there's no, nothing, you know, the only thing that gives you pause to say, is this, is this not gender specific, is that it turns to address women as a group. And they right. say, and so some people say, well, that's the wives of, of elders or deacons and, or the wives of deacons, I think in the context, yeah. but, or is, is this a, is this a, a, a group of women deacons? And what I would suggest is that women are just getting specific instructions here because the, the different genders, you know, said, so let's, let's zero in on women and give them some more specific instructions about how they're going to be relate, relating in these roles. Okay, but there's there's nothing in here that uh, no no um, activities in here that women wouldn't do uh, in in the general qualifications. Well, but of course, a commentarian would say because of First Timothy two, the able to teach would be ruled out because Paul said not allowed to teach. 
Uh, Paul said, I know you got I'm, lots of thoughts on that. But <laughs> well, I'm going to teach. Yes, but, but and it, it could be well that uh, one may not be at that point in time in the since things were kind of in an uproar in the women's culture at that uh, at that point that. What, what, but I would probably go according to individuals at that time rather than a general instruction that there might be a, a, an individual who's, who's well qualified, even though he's doing but this. Now we're getting into how would you read that? But um, it sounds like he's well, number one. <laughs> Do we want to go there? Yeah, let's go. There. Yeah, we, we have to cover. We can't have this conversation without covering for Timothy, too. So um, yeah. I, I know there's a lot yeah. going on there. Is Timothy, too, really, really about a worship service? I just read that this morning in your book. That's, that's, uh, keep going. <laughs> well, I always knew it was because that's what my subheading said <laughs> that this is, these are instructions for a worship, instructions on worship. And usually taken, this is in a worship service. And, and so, but, but immediately that kind of falls apart. So, why do you think it's a worship service? Well, there's instructions on prayer. And then it says, uh, and so then it says, I want men everywhere. Everywhere, that's in every place, yeah. right? Liter- to, yeah. to pray, lifting holy hands with an- anger or disputing. And they say, Go ahead, it's a worship service. And I'm saying, no, it's not. There's no signal that this is a worship service. And you can, if you want to take, you know, did you think Paul wrote it? Do you think he didn't write it? I really don't care, but I do think, no, I do care. But <laughs> what I mean is for this argument, mm-hmm. I would say, Let's put it in a Pauline context. I do, at the very least, you say um, whoever wrote this understood Paul's writings well, and Paul's theology of prayer was everywhere at all times. Mm. It was never limited to a certain place, or it was at, on the river in your prayer closet. You know, um, everywhere, mm-hmm. and it and at all times without ceasing, and that and that's what I would read. Uh, these discussions on prayer by no means, and it specifically does not limit it to a, a place such as a house church or a once a week, this is what you, right. once a week right. you pray without anger or disputing. And what, what's being missed is that before Paul addresses women, he's hitting, he's hitting what's gone wrong with the men. And he's going to return to that later on in the epistle. But the idea of anger and disputing is a big topic later on. And so the men, men, he's not saying men get to pray and women stay silent. What he's saying <laughs> is I want men to stop fight, being angry and fighting and arguing like I'm going to talk about later. Hmm. He goes, we'll get to that. Okay, but let me talk to the women. And, and it's always a problem for saying this isn't a worship service to look at, see, get the women get a general command and it's about dressing. Um, and most of us are taking the position. This is, um, confronting luxurious clothes as opposed to modesty. Mm-hmm. I think, I think instructions on modesty are going to go too, but I have to agree. It looks like an emphasis that the idea of display of ostentatious, uh, clothing and hairstyles and stuff is a thing. And um, if you think that women were veiling, if this isn't a worship service, why isn't it talking about them wearing a veil? Hmm. Uh, so wait, real, real quick, the, the worship, so what about like three in 315, when he kind of sums up, I'm writing these things to you so that you know how to act in God's household, which is the church of the living God. So someone could say, 
that that's kind of the overarching purpose of the letter. So everything is under that kind of rubric of here's how you're supposed to act in God's church. Is that where people get well, I, that this is a worship service? Thing about it is, it is if we went over the qualifications for elders, are we really talking about a worship service there hmm. at any point? So it's, yeah. Okay. So it's not necessarily specific <laughs> instructions for the gathering you're saying, but if you're a Christian, then you're part of God's household. So it's more of a genetic, like a general, like, Here's a new family you belong to. Here's a new way of living, not here's instructions for the Sunday morning service. Um, yes, exactly. And I don't and I think you're you're gonna be hard put to say that's what happened in chapter three. And and I'm saying that it doesn't fit the evidence in chapter two, that women should be dressing uh, in the in the way he's describing everywhere, and they should be adorning themselves with good work at all times and all places, mm-hmm. not just on Sunday morning. These are these are all times and all place commands, and then and then it goes in uh, verse eleven. It goes to the singular, and and everybody says, "Ah, oh, don't pay attention to the singular. Don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain." And <laughs> It's like, no, you do you do pay attention to the grammar and what does it tell you? And um, I'm suggesting that it, when it says a, a woman should learn, a woman, singular, should learn in quietness and submission, what you have there within that culture is a signal for a woman being homeschooled by her husband or her father. And uh, that and it, this is this is a one on one teaching situation, that's how women learn. Because I'll tell you what, Timothy was not going to uh, be looked well upon if he tried to get uh, wives or young women together in a little teaching group. That would not be a, that would not be appropriate at that time. If, if things are going wrong in the women's culture, how do you get at it? And as Timothy, how, how does Timothy get at it and says, okay, instruct faithful men who are able to instruct other faithful people in this pay, case. And there he's, he's trying to correct the women's culture through instruction in the home. And that's where, that's why, you know, you, when you get childbirth and marriage passage and everything mm-hmm. that, um, that should throw everyone off. They, they're they're trying yeah. to you know, trying to hold it together, but it doesn't hold together well. But if you've got a household uh, context and a relationship between a, a, a wife and her husband, then the whole thing holds together very well. And she, and that's the only um, direct command is that women should learn. He wants women to learn. Mm-hmm. And um, we've and what I would suggest is if you go back to first. Uh, Timothy chapter one, he talks about the things that are going wrong uh, specifically and says, okay, I wrote you, I wrote you, you know, I'm writing you about, you know, the false teaching and everything that's going on. And that's what I left you there to correct. And uh, I would say the whole thing is addressing the false teaching. And we can look elsewhere in the in the we, uh, letter and see other things that talk about um, things that have gone wrong in the women's culture. We talked about the instructions on widows and them dressing luxuriously. Another thing is that he wants them to, uh, if, they're, if they're not going to be true to their vows and not behave appropriately, then he wants them to get married and what? Have children. Mm-hmm. Um, he also addresses a concern about forsaking the marriage bed, you know, and um, these things have something to do with with childbirth. Things are going wrong in the women's culture. He's he's addressing this is a strategy for addressing them. He wants them homeschooled. When you say homeschooled, I mean, in that culture, women 
unless you're like a really high status woman, I mean, you wouldn't have had nearly the same education, public education as a man. Is that true or? Um, Absolutely so, true. Okay. You have you have a rare exception. Usually, it would be the daughter of the teacher or daughter of a philosopher might take part in classes. But by and large, whatever women learned, they learned in the home. That was how women that was how women were educated, in whatever way they were educated. People try have tried to make the case that you know women were literate, but I mean maybe the literacy like you have in Afghanistan, you know, which is not beyond second grade education. And so you know, to be, to, to catch up, to be brought up to speed, um, you know, you need to be taught and he, he's placing the responsibility on the household. And, and then he's, he's saying, but oh, this is what I'm not permitting. And, 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 and again, the thing is this for all churches all time, hmm. or is this for right now? Well, he's telling you, Paul's been pretty, if, if you think this is Pauline, Paul's clear. Am I saying this or is the Lord saying this? Is this what we're doing here and now? Or are we doing it in all the churches? He never says we're doing it in all the churches. He never said that this is a general command. He says, this is what I'm doing right now. He doesn't say right now, but you could put that in and it would be perfectly at home within this whole, these are instructions that are geared to deal with this these false teachings. You know, the myths that are circulating among you, the old wives' tales. And uh, so he says, it, now this is where it gets hairy, and I'm not sure how much I want to get into the hairy parts, but he says to teach, I'm not permitting, nor to exercise authority over a man, a woman. I'm not permitting a woman. Again, we're still in the singular. And if you're talking about women teaching the church, that's weird grammar. But if you're talking about a wife and a husband in that home situation, which I would say we're in, we're okay, we're good. This is a husband and wife. When he says to teach, that could be a moratorium on teaching, but this still could, since we're in the home, I'd say, you know, I'm not not one, I'm not a permitting right now the women to take the, the teaching role in this situation. And then when he said to authentic, did I say exercise authority? I shouldn't have said that because I think that's a translation. First of all, that would be everyone tries to reduce that word to its semantic domain. Right. You understand semantic domains, right? And so they say they're saying basically it belongs to the semantic domain of authority. So we could translate as that as authority. Well, you know that's wrong in the first place. This is a nuanced word. It's a hapaxagomena that only occurs once in the New Testament. What does it mean? How is it used? And I would say that instead of an authority word, this is a power word. It's a it's a power word that has to do with force. And that force can be up to lethal force. Um, often it is lethal force, but you know, it's like I've done a, a um, study of all the um, occurrences of this word. And every time it's done to another person, it forces them to do something they don't want to do. Mm. It has, it is never used for ministry to another person. Not once, mm. not once. What did I say? It can't mean now what it didn't mean then. This does not mean to be a senior pastor. This is, this, this has been used in cases where murder exists. Sometimes it's just forcing someone. Sometimes it's executing them. Um, you know, this could be rebellion. Um, it, 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 the thing, reason it can't be authority is, is that sometimes it's an authority and sometimes it's not. Hmm. And if, if it is an authority who it's their business to do this, then it, yay, we're all yeah. good. What, and, what, what about Kostenberger's uh, it, argument that if I remember correctly, 
whenever you see this these two like two terms paired with this kind of construction, they're either both positive or both negative. Um, they can't one can't be positive and the other negative. And since teaching is didascale or whatever, it's just a normal word for teaching. Therefore, authority here should also be positive. Are you well, the thing. False teaching is not positive, and and um, I, I think he's he's uh, thinking that the te- he doesn't trust the women's culture and what's coming out of it right now. So contextually, this would be this. <laughs> he's he's yeah. he's saying there's a lot of myths and old wives' tales floating around here, and we want to yeah. nail them down. So I would contextually, we're talking about dealing with false teaching among other things and in problematic practices. Yeah, and. So authentane sometimes is positive. Okay. So I, I mean, yes, uh, sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. So those who say it's always negative are wrong. So okay. let me tell you, they say God does it, and say yes, and we're glad He does it. I think. <laughs> I mean, He does it to Sodom and Gomorrah; it was destroyed, and He does it to the wicked, and they perish. And so you can say that we're supposed to give that a positive appraisal, <laughs> but I don't want to be the wicked. I don't want to be inside of the world. I don't want that to happen to me. Yeah. So, yeah, so this is the case where it, it was, you know, killed. He killed and destroyed. The way I put it, too, is that is, so a, a lot of times if it doesn't have a personal object, it can also be. Uh, positive. And so okay. there's there's a thing where um, uh, there's a letter to a bishop where he says, I want you to come in there and just authenticate this matter. It reminds me of like a foot bugging. You're going to dominate this yeah. game. Clean you house. Know? <laughs> you know? And I like to say about it is, is that we want to um, eradic- uh, eradicate illiteracy, but illiterates not so much. <laughs> Did you say that in the book? That sounds about. I think yeah. I think you said that in the book. I, I might have. I, if I didn't, I said it elsewhere. It's my. It's my favorite line. <laughs> Eradicate illiteracy, but we don't want to. Authentic. Yeah. We want to authenticate illiteracy, but not authenticate illiterate people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. So, so this is really a good. I think a good illustration hmm. of how what the word does. Okay. And um, a lot, but, but, you know, if you, if you have ultimate authority, if you're Caesar or you're a high ruler, you kind of have the right to do this, but you know, that's pretty much where the line is. The rest of the people who who are not doing this over a thing per Mm se, but are doing it to other people are um, inappropriate, Mm -hmm. inappropriate use of force. And so what would that mean with a woman? Well, it could mean that there there it is. We don't know what the, what the context is, but uh, if she was withholding sex, in order to get around Genesis three, Paul would huh. not be amused, yeah. and I could see using that word for something like that. Uh, for and and there is evidence that women were avoiding sex in order to have children, but not have children. Not have children, yeah. Cynthia, Which I've taken great- you, I've taken you over the hour allotted. You give me so much to think about, and it's so fun to be able to like, yeah, it's just so fun. Like literally this morning, I'm reading your book, and now I'm talking to the author, and it's. Wish I could do that with every book I read. <laughs> so thank you so much for for giving us so much to think about, and uh, really appreciate you and your ministry. And maybe one of these days we'll be able to meet up in person. Oh, I hope so. Cool. I appreciate you and your uh, your work here. Thank I you really so do. much. Thank you. I appreciate it.
show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.